It's good to be here with you again. It was just over here a couple of weeks ago, as Brother Heller mentioned, and uh, had a wonderful time Wednesday evening uh, sharing our future vision for church planting, a fresh wind forward plan. You'll be hearing more about that as the weeks and months go ahead. Uh, but it is good to be with you this morning. For those of you who do not know me or this ministry, my name is David Gundrum, and I direct Church Extension Ministries. Church Extension is the mission arm of the Bible Fellowship Church that seeks to reach people with the gospel and plant Bible Fellowship Churches. And uh, if you look up here, when it comes up here, there it is. Uh, this is your evangelistic church planting mission. It's not an entity that's maverick out there someplace, that's unattached to anything. This is your, the BFC, church planting mission. And the reason I say that is because these men that I'm going to introduce to you, your church planting family, are BFC missionaries that are dedicated and committed solely to planting Bible fellowship churches. Their, their attentions are not divided. They don't work with any other mission board but ours. And they are solely committed and charged uh, to planting Bible fellowship churches. And this is an exciting group of guys that God has brought together. Uh, some years ago when I was here, I remember encouraging you uh, to pray for church extension ministries and pray that God would raise up men who were uniquely gifted and uniquely talented with their abilities uh, to plant churches. It takes a unique individual with unique uh, gift mix to plant churches. And we were praying that God would bring by our way some of those men. Well, he has been bringing by our way a number of those men, and they still keep knocking on our doors. And we are so wonderfully blessed to have a flow of young men uh, who are interested, gifted, and excited about planting churches. So I want to take this time, before we look at God's Word, to introduce you to this wonderful group of men, uh, your Bible Fellowship Church planners. This is a picture taken at one of our most recent round tables. Uh, during the course of the year, we have two training days for these men where they all come together, and we also have two roundtable discussion times where they come together. The roundtables are merely a time for these men to just bounce things, bounce things off each other, uh, let each other know what their struggles are, what their victories are, and, and just a time to really get together as a bunch of church planters. Uh, Stephen Diaz is our newest man on the block. Uh, he has been called to the Alfaro Mission Church in South Allentown. And Stephen and his wife, Angelica, who's from uh, Venezuela, their three boys, uh, began uh, June, I think June 1st was their official starting date. Stephen was uh, grown up, he grew up in Allentown, uh, went to a Lehigh Christian School, and then went to seminary, Bible college and seminary. He and his wife were sent by Send International to Spain, where they spent four years in planting a church with a team there. Very successful church plant there, which is not always the case in Europe, but a very successful church plant there. Came back last year uh, looking for God's leading to his next ministry. And he heard about El Faro, uh, approached us. We took him through our assessment. Uh, we met with him numerous times. And we felt that this was God's replacement for Brother Ramos there in South Allentown. We issued a call to him, and he is now uh, ministering there in South Allentown, really doing a good job of follow-up, too. They just had their Light in the Park outreach there in South Allentown, which reached hundreds of kids. Now they're following up with those families. Down below here is Aaron Sussick. Aaron came to us from the Royers for Bible Fellowship Church. He was an assistant pastor there, and... Uh, felt that God was calling him to church planting. Aaron was called to Adams County uh, Mission Church down near Gettysburg and has been there for now about three or four years. Uh, for a number of years, uh, we have been praying for God to send us a man to go to Cape May, Cape May County, uh, Cape May Courthouse specifically, where we were given a church and property. Uh, I had Mark Morrison, my assistant down there, for a year or two. And we also had another man down there before that. And we were wondering what to do with this work. Uh, we were just about ready to close it and sell the property. When God spoke to our board and we decided, well, we'll send Mark down there. We'll see what we can do. Because we only had about 12 people in that time, in the church at that time. We'll send Mark down there. And Mark did a wonderful job in that year that he was down there. 
in reviving the church. And then God also led us to Keith Strunk and led him to us. And we began to work with Keith Strunk. Keith was an elder at the Bethlehem Bible Fellowship Church, really had a heart for church planting. And I guess it's about a year and a half now, almost two years, that we called Keith to be the church planter down at Cape May. I was down there three weeks ago. And, of course, they get summer numbers, increase in numbers over the summer. But even so, that group of 12 people, when I was there three weeks ago, was a group of 115 people. And they packed it out in the, in the balcony and everything else. And so we're really excited. Keith is very aggressive with the gospel, very desirous to minister the gospel and win souls for Jesus Christ. Below there is Mark Barninger. In the past four years, we've graduated three mission churches. Uh, that really, you can say amen to that. What that means is that the Bible Fellowship Church grew by three churches because mission churches graduate and become particular churches in our denomination. These are mission churches, and they have to reach a certain criteria to become a particular church, and I'll show you that at the end of this uh, presentation. Uh, Mark Barninger is planning on graduating next year. That'll be four in five years. Praise God for that. Uh, Mark uh, is meeting the criteria at this point. They were stagnant for a while. This is a daughter church plant, the Harrisburg Bible Fellowship Church, Send Mark, who was their assistant, out with a group of about 45 people, and they began a church in Hanover Township up near Penn National Racetrack. They met in the Holiday Inn building there, <clears throat> but it stagnated for about a year, year and a half, and we were wondering what we could do to stimulate growth there. We know that it has to come from the Holy Spirit, but what could we could do from our part, a human part? Uh, what happened was that Mark caught the vision for relocation. They found a property in Dauphin Township, uh, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and we relocated to work last year, to this past year, to that property. It's a, a beautiful little old country church there in a great community that doesn't have a strong witness of the gospel. Since that time, they went from about 50-some people. Uh, I just got his report in the other day for last month, and they're up to about 90 people. So praise God that that growth is taking place they're really reaching that community. And I'm really convinced that, that communities need to be reached by their indigenous churches and not these satellite campuses all over the place, but, but rather a church in the community. Maybe that's my old parish Catholic background, but uh, I really believe that's the way the gospel penetrates hearts and minds in a community. Uh, this is our Spanish contingent, and you may be aware of Carlos Rodriguez and Miguel Gonzalez. They work as a team in Reading. Reading is a city of about 72% Hispanic. It keeps growing. It's my hometown where I grew up, but uh, today it is really a Spanish city. And these brothers are working hard. Uh, they've been doing this now for seven years, uh, eight years I think it is, and they've grown a church from nothing really to about 150 people. They're looking now even to send some of those out, maybe for a daughter church, a Hispanic church plant, possibly in Lancaster. And, of course, some of you are aware that we've been looking at Lancaster as a possible site for our third Hispanic church plant. So keep that in your prayers, please. David Smith up top there. This is one of our recent graduates. They graduated this past April. And in the bulletin, as Pastor Heller mentioned, there is a little vignette in there in the Fellowship News insert regarding the baptisms that were taking place between these, these, these group of Harrisburg church, church and church plants uh, this, this past week. I was reading, well, we were singing in the hymn uh, that we just concluded. Uh, there's a stanza in there. I think it's a third stanza, maybe the fourth line down. That, and I better quote it because I'll mess it up probably. Um, it's a wonderful statement. It just stuck out to me as we were as we were singing. I did earmark this thing, so there it is. May Christ. Now listen to this. May Christ's love efface hostilities of race. What a great statement. This thing was written back in 1970. And, of course, at that time, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Uh, this hymn was written back in that era when there was a lot of racial tensions in, in the United States. There's even a lot remaining yet today. But that Christ's love, may Christ's love efface, that means do away with, 
hostilities of race. Well, David is working at that. (laughs) David has a multicultural church, many different races there, even a group of Ukrainians, about 12 Ukrainian young people. And he is working at doing away with the hostilities of race. Uh, It's a wonderful church. If you ever want to take, I don't want to tell you to take a Sunday off from Lebanon Bible Fellowship Church. But if you ever do take a Sunday and you want to just take a ride and spend a day at another church or something, take a ride out to Steelton, Pennsylvania. They relocated also to a new building that was purchased this past year. Take a ride out to Steelton, Pennsylvania and get a flavor of this multicultural dynamic church that's happening there in Steelton, Pennsylvania. Below that is one of our newer church plants. Also, Scott Wright. And again, this is a daughter church plant from the Harleysville Bible Fellowship Church in the Bucksmont region of churches. Scott was the assistant at Harleysville, felt a burden to go out and plant a church. And the church supported him, sent him out. And he's meeting down in uh, the Trooper Audubon area near King of Prussia. Uh, we call this the Lower, Lower Providence uh, by a mission church there. And Scott is meeting in the Hampton Inn right on 422 when you go down towards King of Prussia. It's right on that uh, Audubon exit there. Up top there is another one of our new church planners and another daughter church. The Newark, Delaware Bible Fellowship Church sent Ron Smith out with a group of people. Ron was not part of their staff. But it come to me and we hooked Ron up with Newark because he was living in Hokessin, Delaware. Ron graduated from Lehigh University and also Biblical Seminary with his MDiv. He worked for the last 15, 20 years in chemical sales. He's a chemical engineer. And Ron believed, again, God was calling him to plant a church. We went through all the assessment with Ron and sent him out, called him and sent him out last year. Uh, to Greater Townsend, which is an area, uh, Townsend, Smyrna, Odessa, a little bit north of Dover, Delaware. And he is meeting in the Townsend Fire Company, a beautiful, a beautiful meeting room. And really, uh, he's doing this bivocationally, which means that he's working full time and planting the church at the same time. But again, he has a great team that was sent with him from the Newark, Delaware church, and they are now expanding the kingdom there. And he's doing a wonderful job, and it is growing. Freddie Chi is down in Via Magna, Mexico. This, again, is a daughter church plant from our first international Bible fellowship church in Merida, Mexico. Pastor Marcos Ramirez is the pastor of that first international BFC church in Merida, Mexico. Pastor Marcos wants to saturate this Yucatan Peninsula with Bible fellowship churches, and his first attempt is to send out Freddie Chi to a a town outside of Merida called Via Magna. Uh, We just had a group from the Harleysville Church go down there the other week. Uh, You can read about them in this week's coming Antiochian. I'll tell you a little bit more about the Antiochian in a minute. But uh, Freddie Chi is doing a wonderful job of growing a church in Via Magna, Mexico. And then down here, we have two fellows. And one of these these fellows is your homegrown guy, uh, Tim Zook. Dad and I were talking earlier about Tim's energy and desire to plant a church from scratch. Well, Tim successfully finished off the church plant in Hellertown, the Salkin Community Church. And now he's a true church planter because now he has that church stabilized. And a true church planter gets a fire burning again in their gut to plant another church. And that's what Tim has. And that's what Dan Williams has over in Woolwich uh, Township, New Jersey. Dan was successfully planted the Woodbury Heights Church in New Jersey. Now, like Tim, wants to move on and do another church, plant another church in a neighboring community. So keep those two fellows in prayers. We work with them. This is this is this shouldn't be a hybrid, but it's a little bit of a hybrid. I mean, churches need to plant churches and church planters need to move on and do that church planting. So uh, pray with us that this will uh, all come together. Some of our projected plants, uh, we talked about the Hispanic plant in Lancaster. We're looking at Easton, Talbot County, and also Denton, Caroline County in Maryland. I'd like to see us break into Maryland with a church plant and uh, break into a new state. And so that may be coming up. We talked about Forks Township with Tim Zook coming up. And also Joshua DePeach over here, Joshua and Julie... 
Joshua was born in Haiti, uh, lived here most of his life. They both went to seminary, uh, went to college at Eastern. And Julie, I dedicated her when she was a young girl at the Quakertown Bible Fellowship Church that I pastored for 11 years. Uh, Julie and they married. They have a burden for the city and reaching people in the city. They live in the Mount Airy Germantown section of Philadelphia. And they right now are going through the process of gathering a core group. And Lord willing, we will open a mission. Our first, and this is, this is a first in a while that we're going to be opening a mission in a metro urban area, a large metro urban area. We have urban missions. <coughs> excuse me. We have some urban missions already in, in smaller, medium-sized cities, like I mentioned, Reading uh, and Allentown. But this is the first time in a while that we will be going into a larger metro urban area to plant. So pray for Joshua, pray for Julie, please, that they would gather. I challenge them that they need to gather four to five families to commit to being their initial core group before we would issue a call to them. So they're out there working at that right now. Uh, and then... We also get involved with restart ministries. Sometimes we're called, years ago we were called upon all the time to go into places and try to revive a work, a church. But we found out that it used up a lot of our resources, and our resources are to go towards planting new churches. And so, if we, if we are approached, and if the work of a church that's dying is within our, our, our regional area or within our target, uh, we may consider trying to give some assistance and help it with that church. That was the case with the Long Neck Delaware Bible Fellowship Church. We planted this church some seven years ago. Dr. Ken Barber, who formerly pastored the Holy Bible Fellowship Church, went down, planted this church. It was going great for a while. Then we had some problems with leadership. And then more recently, about two years ago, we had more problems with leadership. And the church ended up not having a pastor and not having elders. And so that when that's the case, the Ministerial Relations Committee uh, has to oversee the work and decide what it's going to do. Uh, the work was down to about 15 people. And they came to us and said, you know, would you help us out with this? And we decided that we would because it's in our region of church planting and it's significant to our focus for planting churches and moving south. And so we decided that. I sent Mark Morrison had uh, finished up at Cape May. And so we sent him down to uh, sent him down to Long Neck. I worked with that church for about two months in helping them understand our doctrinal positions, which they were totally confused about. And at the end of the two months, these 15 people committed to be the core group of that church. Mark worked with them for about a year. And from 15 people, they're averaging now about 55 people. And we were able to call Andy Barnes, who came to us from the Bethlehem Bible Fellowship Church. His father-in-law is Dick Bickings on the staff of Bethlehem, and he pastored in Florida. And he heard about this opportunity, and God just dovetailed everything together, put the pieces together. We called Andy down there last month, and he's just been wonderful so far down there with that church there. Some people who assist me are the Bertolets. You support Ray and Louise. They came to us from Guam, from Transworld Radio, about six years ago, seven years ago, uh, to assist us with church planting. And Ray's, Ray is really my go-for guy. Uh, he's just tremendous. Uh, he's also our property committee chairman. He had 20 years of construction experience, and he's a terrific fellow to work with. And then, of course, Marcos Ramirez, who I mentioned, being the pastor of the Merida Bible Fellowship Church, we designated him as director of church planting in Mexico. And I Skype meet with him quite a lot to go over things and his vision for down there. These are the criteria for a mission church to graduate. They have to have at least two men other than the church planter who are qualified to be elders. They have to have a significant committed participant, adult participant group. And they have to be financially self-supporting. This last, this last criteria we only added in the past four years. We really wanted to graduate churches that were financially stable and self-supporting so that they wouldn't be boomeranging back into our department. And so far with the churches, the four churches we've graduated in the past five years, uh, so far that's been good and worked out well. So we praise God for that. So this is your BFC church planting family. 
And please be praying for them. And also, I have a display out there. Uh, You can put that up now. It's fine. Uh, I have a display out there. I'd love for you to stop back there. I mentioned the Antiochian report. It is a weekly email report (coughs) Excuse me, that we send out that gives you information on all these men, plus things coming up in the future, current prayer requests, current insights into things, and challenging notes on different things about church planting, along with a weekly devotional, which I think you'll enjoy, too. Uh, Please stop back there. There's a clipboard. All you need to do is put your name and email address. I'd love for many of you who may not have signed up before uh, to go back there and become part of our Antiochian group. As you can see, God is moving. God is always on the move. (laughs) And God wants his church to be on the move also. I'd like you to turn back to that passage in Zechariah. We're not going to exegete this passage, but we're going to use it as a springboard for looking at the premise, and keep this in mind, looking at the premise that God wants his church to be on the move. So we're going to use Zechariah here as kind of a springboard for that and make a pilgrimage through the Old Testament, looking at does God really want his church to be on the move? Then some passages of the new church, does God really want his church to be on the move to prove that premise of God wanting his church to be on the move? Then we're going to conclude by looking at what kind of a testimony does it give to the world around us when his church is on the move? Now, I want you to keep in mind one thing as we go along here. When I talk about church, I'm not only talking about the corporate church, the invisible church of Jesus Christ, or the the corporate local church, but I'm also talking about you and I who are the church and make up the local body and the universal invisible body. So keep that in mind so you don't disenfranchise from church. Because you are the church, and I am the church, by virtue of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and being born again into his family. So, let's just read again. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. Uh, Zechariah chapter 10, verse 9. And that's, that's really the verse I want to, uh, verse 9 and 10, those are really the two verses I just want to springboard from. When I scatter them among the peoples... They will remember me in far countries and they with their children will live and come back. And I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon. Father in heaven, as we look at your word this morning, uh, we've made we've set forth a premise. An hypothesis that God, you want your church on the move. We want to prove that through what you've spoken to us in your word, that that is true, that you do want your church on the move. You want your church on the move with the gospel seeding the lives of people that we come in contact with in our community, our neighborhood, our workplace, our schools, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And so bless our time this morning, Lord, as we look at your desire to have your church be on the move for Jesus Christ with his gospel. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Many of you probably have heard the adage, if not all of you heard the old proverb, you might call it, and that is a rolling stone gathers no moss. You heard that? At least give me a nod to let me know that you're alive, the blood's flowing, and everything else is going on in your body there this morning. Yeah, that's an old adage. It goes back to the first century. It was written by a fellow by the name of Publius Silvius. Now, Publius was a proverb writer. I want that job. Because all he did was sit around and come up with wise sayings. And he would sell those wise sayings and get paid for it. That's a great job. I can do that. Publius Silvius wrote thousands of proverbs. And this is the one that really sticks out and and has carried on throughout the years. It's a proverb that has been put to 20 different modern songs, or pop songs particularly, and one of them was written by one of my favorites back in the 60s. Anybody know the name? Bob Dylan. 
Bob Dylan put this, this, ad, this proverb to, to music and to a song. Now, I wasn't saved in the 60s, so I don't think I, you know, I'm, I'm popular with Bob Dylan today. But anyways, it was, it was a popular song, and the lyrics went like this. How does it feel? Now you remember it? How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home, like a complete unknown, say it with me, like a rolling stone? Well, Dylan's version, or Dylan's bent on this proverb, uh, was a negative bent. He felt that a rolling stone was an individual who took on no responsibility, uh, didn't bother with productivity or anything, and that uh, uh, an individual who was a rolling stone didn't have any focus, didn't have any direction, he had nothing to uh, go towards, no goals, objectives, or anything like that. You know, he was a complete unknown. Well, that's the minority view of this proverb. The majority of you, view of this proverb is that when we think of a rolling stone not gathering any moss, we're thinking of somebody who doesn't want to stagnate, stay in one place, and be unproductive. But rather to be productive, to keep moving, so that moss doesn't grow in them. The church... Here's the premise again. God wants his church not to be like a rolling stone that gathers moss, but rather to be a rolling stone that's productive, moving into communities scattered in places, in schools, in, 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 in senior meetings, in every place that an individual Christian has contact with. They are to be on the move for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's our premise. Well, does Scripture justify that premise? Let's go back and look at Zechariah first. Use that as a jumping point, And then we're going to make a pilgrimage from Genesis 3 on into the New Testament to prove that God does want his church, his people, on the move. In Zechariah, it starts off by saying, When I scatter them among the peoples, Right there, that word scatter, it's that wonderful word. And in the, in the King James, if any of you have that sitting on your lap, in the King James is a more accurate translation of that word. The word is sow. Not sow with a needle and thread, but rather with seeds. It's that idea, that agriculture idea of a, of a farmer way back with his bag of seeds on his, on his shoulder, digging into the seeds and scattering them with that expertise that only he could have to know that they would go in the right places, gathering those seeds throughout wherever he walks, and then waiting upon those seeds to germinate and to grow and develop and to bring fruit. That's the idea here. God scatters his people. He sows his people out. And in this particular case, he talks about scattering them among the peoples. They will remember me. Look at that next clause, though. They will remember me in far countries. As those seeds are sown, something happens. As you and I are sown into our community, into our schools, into our neighborhood, into our homes, uh, as we are sown as the church of Jesus Christ, and we're scattered out there, we are to remember God as we're scattered. God expected these people that he was going to scatter. And look where he scatters them. He scatters them to Assyria and to Egypt. These pagan countries. And my brothers and sisters, tonight when we look at the world on our doorstep, we're going to see that America is a pagan country. We are scattered like these Jews into our Egypts and Assyrias, no matter where that might be, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, and so forth. And we are to be seeds as God scatters us. And when we're seeded in our particular frame of reference, we are to remember him. And the Hebrew here has this idea of worship. When we are sown into communities and into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remember God in several ways. We remember God by worshiping him. We remember God by living holy lives and pure lives. And we remember God by being obedient to him. And so when God scatters us out, as he did here, he expected his people to remember him, to worship him, to live holy for him and 
also to be obedient to him. That testimony would then gather the people of his elect from those various countries. Now, this verse would be well would be good enough to say that God wants his people on the move because he himself scatters them. He sows them. But let's look from Genesis 3. And I don't need you to turn back because I'm going to quickly go through this. I will ask you then in the New Testament to turn to some passages. In Genesis 3, we know the story. In Genesis 3, God curses man, woman, and all creation and the devil. At the end of that cursing, God gives a redemptive promise. And that redemptive promise is that the seed, one day a seed of the woman, will crush sin, death, and the devil. That promise of redemption, the promise of Yeshua to come, the promise of Redeemer to come. He seals that promise by killing animals and putting a blood skin on top of Adam and Eve as a sign of that redemption, as a sign of the blood covering of the coming Redeemer. And then he sends them out. He scatters them. He sends them out of the garden. It says they're out of the garden to cultivate. Interesting word. Because it primarily means to cultivate agriculturally. But it also has a bent towards to cultivate, propagate, and fill the world. Which was the original directives given to Adam and Eve in the garden. They go out of the garden. They're scattered out of the garden. They're sent out of the garden. And through their next generations, through their genealogies, we see, and particularly through Seth, we see that they multiply and they grow and they develop. And in that multiplication, they are to be seeding the further generations of, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even from the beginning, we see this kind of cryptic, uh, veiled view of God wanting his people to be on the move. And of course, we know what happens after that. In Genesis 6, we see that the generations after Adam come to a point of total uh, ir- ir- irresponsibility, total immorality. There is none righteous but Noah. And so God brings on a flood to eradicate that whole generation and almost wants to start all over brand new again. And he does that, and through the generations that proceed from Noah, we come to the, the plains of Shinar, where all the peoples of the world are gathered as one with one language. And they decide at that particular point, through that innate understanding that we all have, that we want to be like God, they wanted a, a community to be God. And so they get the bricks and the mortar, and they start to build these strong bricks and mortar with this tower up into the sky. And they finally reached the point that they could go no further, and they felt they were like gods. Well, God looks down on this, and he realizes that uh, he cannot allow this to happen. It wasn't his desire to have, one, to have his, the people of the world gathered in one place to be their own god, deciding their own, their own uh, decision, making their own decisions and such. And he comes down, and the scriptures tell us he confuses their languages, gives them all various languages, and here again the word is used, same word in Zechariah, and same implication in Genesis 3. He gives this word, and he scattered them, sowed them out of there, each with various unique languages, so they couldn't do this again. And now they're on the move, and they're moving out to various territories, hopefully with the lesson of judgment, the lesson that came through judgment, and also with the understanding of the promise of the Redeemer to take with them. Right away, after the genealogies are given in Genesis chapter 11, uh, of those people that were scattered out, we see Genesis 12 come onto the scene. And in Genesis 12, God makes his covenant with Abraham. And what a wonderful introduction to that covenant. I'm just going to uh, go back there. You don't need to go back there at this point. We're going to pick up your fingers running through the scriptures in a minute. But back there in Genesis chapter 12, he begins that passage by saying, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth. Go forth from your country and your relatives. Again, we see even in judgment and cursing, and now covenantially, God wants his people to be on the move. 
to go forth with the, in this particular case in Genesis 12, the promise of the Redeemer who we know as Jesus Christ. Well, we don't need to go back to Zechariah, but again, we could not only go to Zechariah, we could go to many other passages throughout the Old Testament, throughout the, uh, without the kings, throughout the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and see that God, and prove that God wants his people to be on the go. But we do need to turn to the New Testament, because with the incarnation of the King, Jesus Christ, the coming of the Redeemer, and his death, burial, and resurrection, can we still show and prove that premise that God wants his people to be on the move? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants the church to be, now that Jesus has come and the church is established, maybe he wants the church to be introverted, to be focusing on itself and not necessarily penetrate out into the community, into various places through people's lives taking the gospel. I'd like to, first of all, have you turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at how Jesus sets the model for his church later to be established to be on the go. We're only going to look at one passage in Matthew chapter 4, and that's verse 24. Sorry, I have to get back to that. That was in Matthew 9 where we're heading. Verse 23. I want you to take note of a couple things in this particular passage. Number one, the idea of movement. And number two, the characterization of the ministry of the church. And remember, who's the church? I am. This is. We are. Okay? So, two, th- two things I want you to take notice of here. First of all, the aspect of going. And secondly, how the church, how the responsibilities of the church or the duties or the character of the church are explained here. First of all, in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to look, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we're going to look at chapter 9 where this same almost verbatim passage is repeated and really is repeated in many other ways throughout the Gospels. Verse 23, Jesus was going through all Galilee. Jesus was going. Jesus was going. Jesus was going. There was no moss growing on Jesus. He was going all throughout Galilee, and here's what he was going and doing. This is what characterizes the church. He was going, teaching, dialogue with people about himself. He was, in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel bringing people to understand that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and by his death, burial, and resurrection, they would, re, they would find peace with God, and healing, showing mercy every, to every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Here's the character of the church. It's supposed to be going, teaching, dialoguing with people about Jesus, proclaiming Christ, the gospel, as the only way, and showing mercy, not as a sidebar, but as all a part of that. Now, if you turn to chapter 9, chapter 9 is chuck full. You don't hear that too much anymore. There was a copy that, was, that used that terminology, chuck full of flavor or something like that. Uh, what, what, chuck, chuck, something nuts or something, whatever. But chapter 9 is chuck full of Jesus on the go with this teaching, proclaiming, and doing mercy. Let me just run through this first of all. Verse, nine, uh, verse 1, chapter 9. He came to his own city. He was on the go throughout Galilee, but now came to Capernaum, which he replaced, you know, it was no longer Bethlehem his birthplace or Nazareth his home, but Capernaum became his base of operations. He came to his own city. Came to his own city. Down there in verse 9, Jesus went on, from there, I want you to see the motion that's involved here. He went on from there, saw Matthew and, and called Matthew. Then if you look over in verse 19, Jesus got up and began to follow him. And so did his disciples following this synagogue official. And then down at verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, 
Then over in verse 32, as they were going, him and his disciples, and then down in verse 35, this is the verbatim text from Matthew 4, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. We don't have time to look at every scenario in here that modifies this going with all the encounters that Jesus had of teaching, proclaiming, and healing. But this is the character of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, the head of the church. Jesus, the one who dies for the church. Jesus, the one who, who brings the Spirit to fill the church. Jesus' earthly incarnational ministry was characterized by going on the move. Now you say, Pastor, wait a second. Don't the Scriptures tell us to be still? And know that God is real and know God? Sure they do. And Jesus took stillness very seriously. He retreated. He went away at times and took some time away from the multitudes and even from his disciples to be still, meditate with God. But then what did he do? He didn't. Stillness and stagnation are two different things. Stag- stillness is not stagnation. Stillness is refreshing To be on the move. And that's what Jesus did. He would catch those times of refreshment, pull himself up, and be on the move with the gospel again. And there are certainly times that we need to be still and know that he is God. So that we can be refreshed to move on. Do you hear that? So that we can be refreshed to move on. Well, Jesus' earthly ministry, and this is just one little one little vignette here in this proving this premise of the church should be on the move. Jesus shows us that he, the head of the church, is on the move. And what the head of the church does, we should be doing. We should be on the move with the gospel. But I want to take you to one more proof set of texts. And that's in the book of Acts. Turn there with me. Starting in Acts chapter 1. We label this as the Great Commission, and tonight we'll talk more more about this because this is not a geographical commission, but a commission to go to unbelief. And we'll elaborate on that this evening. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, before he's about to return to heaven and send the Holy Spirit to establish a church in Acts chapter 2, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. And then he gives this geographical uh, geographical movement, okay? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you live now, where you are now, in Judea, a little bit further, in Samaria, a little bit further, then to the uttermost parts of the world. Again, another proof text, even in this great commission, that the church is to be on the move. Well, in Acts chapter 2, the church is established. The Holy Spirit comes, he fills Peter Peter stands up and preaches the gospel in Solomon's portico and 3,000 are saved. The church is established and the church has all these wonderful characteristics. They, they immediately begin to employ in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 to the following end of the chapter there. If you, if you, a little bit of time later, 5,000 are saved. By the time we get to Acts chapter 7, we have a mega church. We have a church that's probably 10,000, maybe more. Of people in Jerusalem, they, even though they had you know, some problems with Ananias and Sapphira and some problems with being fair with the, the widows and so forth in Acts chapter 6, for the most part, the church is large, never really strong, you might say, resource-wise, because they always had problems. They were always a poor church, but they were strong numerically, and they were strong with teaching because all the apostles were there. So this was a stable church. And then a couple guys come on the scene. Philip starts penetrating out of Jerusalem. Gets on the move. Witnesses to an Ethiopian, someone, one of my young kids when I was sharing with him one time, he read that uh, passage about the Ethiopian unch. And, you know, right away, I didn't catch it right away. I thought, oh, okay, unch, what's an unch? And uh, went back, and of course it's eunuch. And, uh, uh, but, you know, Philip's down there witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch's going to take the church down to Ethiopia. Yeah. 
we believe, historically, could have taken place. Then Stephen comes onto the scene. This beautiful young man. Energy. He's a church planter. I, I, boy, if Stephen be here, he'd be turning us upside down. Beautiful young man. Stephen goes out beyond Jerusalem and comes back into places like Samaria and things. And comes back to Jerusalem and he's giving reports and the Sanhedrin realize that, that this man is, is preaching blasphemy in their eyes. And of course, a great trial takes place before the Sanhedrin. And Acts chapter 7 is totally made up of the, Stephen's defense during the course of that trial. And basically, he goes from where we started out back in Genesis on through, showing that Jesus is the Redeemer, the one that has been promised. And of course, he comes to the end and he points the finger at the Sanhedrin and, and condemns them for the, their denial of Christ as the Redeemer, for their own blasphemy. And they take up stones and they issue the directive to Saul, later to become the Apostle Paul, to take this man to the stoning pit, throw him in the stoning pit and murder him. And that takes place. Stephen is placed in that stoning pit in that beautiful face of Christ, seeing the, seeing the person of Christ in heaven is plummeted with stones, pummeled with these pounding of stones, and he's murdered. And Saul there is giving credence to that and oversight to that and agreement with it. Pick up the story in Acts chapter 8. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church. Now, take notice how Dr. Luke doesn't put a period there. But rather, he goes on and talks about geographical areas that line up with the Great Commission. Against the church in Jerusalem, and they are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation on him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who, who had been, ah, the Greek word now, scattered in New American Standard, similar term, an agricultural term of sowing seed. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. God got them on the move. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. We pick this people group who are on the move from, from Jerusalem here now in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So then those who were, ah, the word again, those who were scattered, now look at the clause, because of the persecution. Those who were scattered because of the persecution. It took a persecution to get the church in Jerusalem to get on the move. God martyred this beautiful young man, Stephen. A persecution arose and the church then got on the move. That's what Dr. Luke is telling us here. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews only. They still had a little bit of that bias. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene Gentiles who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Why was the hand of the Lord with them? Because they were on the move for the gospel. I don't believe the hand of the Lord is on the, is on the church that sits still and stagnates. The hand of the Lord is on the move of people who are willing to move for Jesus Christ into their neighborhoods, into their schools, into their senior uh, citizens meetings, into their communities. The hand of the Lord is on them. And the hand of the Lord was with them. A large number who believed turned to the Lord. When the hand of the Lord is on our efforts as we move out with the gospel, repentance takes place. They turned. People repent. And God's elect come to know him as their savior. And look at the way Barnabas puts it. Or look at the way Dr. Luke puts it again. 
when Barnabas is sent up from Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders are saying, hey, what's happening in Antioch? You mean there's Gentiles getting saved? I thought this was a Jewish thing. I thought we would stay together. I thought we would become big and just continue to grow out here in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas up there. Barnabas comes in and then look at verse 23. And when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God. What a way to put coming into a place and seeing people saved. The doctor doesn't say Barnabas came in. And he saw people slain in the spirit, he saw people running down the aisle. He saw people falling over and barking like dogs. He saw people born again. Even though they were, what does it say? He saw the grace of God. When the church is on the move, the hand of the Lord is on it. And remember, who's the church? You and me. When the church is on the move, the hand of the Lord is on us. The grace of, the God, the grace of God works. And in this particular case, and in many other cases, in our case it can be, people get saved. God works. Well, the story's not over because you'll remember in, in Acts chapter 8, I compared it to Acts chapter 1, the Great Commission, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but there's still something else. What? The uttermost parts of the world, right? So in Acts chapter 13, turn there with me. God was not going to allow the Antiochian church to stagnate like Jerusalem did. He was not going to bring about another persecution at this particular time anyway. But if you look at Acts chapter 13, what does he do? Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, this new church, maybe a year year or so old, Barnabas and now Paul, who got saved, is over with Barnabas, discipling the church, growing the church. There were prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me your best. Give me your best. I want your best, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Get going. Get on the move. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And you know the rest of the story. By the end of the first century, these men and others who came alongside them to be church planters, evangelistic church planters, turned the world upside down, according to Dr. Luke. Well, having said all that, I would put forth that we proved our premise. God wants his church. And who's his church? Me, this, and we. God wants his church on the move. And what's the testimony that flows forth when the church is on the move? You know, when I was a kid, on Ray, I was an only child. Maybe you're saying, well, that's why he is the way he is. But anyway, uh, I was an only child. And on rainy days, living in the city, there wasn't a whole lot to do. And so I would get into every little nook and corner in the house. And I'd investigate all these little nooks and corners in the house. And um, before long, I would get under mom's feet. And mom would always say, Davy, scat! Get out of here! Do something! But don't bother me. S-C-A-T. That's our acronym. SCAT. When the church is on the move, first of all, S, the church is seen as sacrificial. It's seen as giving itself up for the greater kingdom of God. Not necessarily wanting to become the biggest edifice in the community. Not necessarily wanting to focus on bigness, but rather on the bigness of the kingdom, not the bigness of the local church. And when people see us sacrifice, give ourselves up, whether it be our personal lives and giving up time and energy, to move the gospel out in our, tech, in our context and touch people's lives with it. Or they see it corporately, giving people up like many of these daughter church plants. These were churches that, they weren't big churches. The Harrisburg Church was a little over 200 people when they sent out Mark Barninger and 45 people to plant. You know, these weren't big mega churches by today's standards, but they sacrificed and gave themselves up 
to provide the witness of the gospel in another community that could reach that community better than they could reach it. S. C. Confessional. I'm not talking about walking around. We should be walking around with the Westminster Catechism or the Belgic uh, Confession or whatever and read that as we walk down the street. That's not what I mean. We should be confessors of Jesus Christ. Unabashedly, unashamedly, proud to say we're Christians in this world. So we should confess Jesus Christ. A. We, are, we, we will become attractional and not attractional by marketing and by, again, the best show in town, but rather attractional by holiness and purity. Do you hear that? We live in a day and age where there isn't a whole lot of, in the secular world, a whole lot of holiness, yet alone purity. Every day we pick up the paper or look in the, look in the news or hear on the radio or the TV This leader fell prey to sexual immorality. That leader fell prey to sexual immorality. This politician, this pastor, this teacher. The world needs to see the holiness and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. And it will be attractional to them. Especially to those addicted to such things that I just mentioned. They want to get out. And we need to... Be that holy attraction to them. And then, last one, T. In Acts, let me look at my notes. Mixed up the passages here. In Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book, The Historical Context of uh, of Acts, uh, Dr. Luke says that the pagan culture was looking at the church of Jesus Christ and they were, they were looking specifically at these men like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and so forth. And Dr. Luke said, he uses a phrase that they characterize these men's ministries by. They turn the world upside down. Are we turning the world upside down today? I don't think so. At least, let me qualify that. Are we turning America up? No, wait a second. Are we turning Lebanon upside down? Are we turning our school? There's only one school I know besides Lebanon High School is Cedar Crest up there. Are we turning Cedar Crest and Lebanon upside down with the gospel? Are we turning wherever you might work in this community upside down with the gospel? Or are we allowing moss to grow? I have moss that grows on a property I have, and the only way I can get it off usually, every so on, it keeps on growing back. The only way I can get it off with is a power wash or a scraper. If you think you're growing moss in your life, come up here. We'd like to power wash and scrape that moss off. No. But let's do a moss check right now. Just think about your own life. And I'll think about mine. Is the moss of stagnation with the gospel growing? Do you see moss anyplace? The moss of stagnating, not being on the move for the gospel of Jesus Christ? If so... Get on the move. Begin this afternoon or tomorrow. That one, that individual at work or at school, your neighborhood, even in your house. And begin a dialogue teaching them what Jesus is about. And you say, I'm not a teacher. I leave that up to the pastors and the elders and so forth. You're a teacher. Tell them the love of Christ. And then pray and ask God to bring them to the point where you can proclaim to them They need to be born again. And if all during that encounter there's some mercy you can show them, show them mercy. That's a way the world will be transformed by the church on the move. Sacrificially, confessionally, attractionally with holy and pure lives. The world can still 
even though it's moving rapidly toward the coming of Christ, we can still have an effect upon our world around us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that justifies the premise of the church being on the move. Jesus set the example and the early church transformed the world by being on the move unashamedly, unabashedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's moss growing on my life, on other lives here, scrape it off of us by a rededication, a recommitment, and maybe even in some cases repentance so that we can be on the move with the gospel of Christ for the kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.